right, awesome. Let me go public now. Okay. All right, I am now joined by Russell Sabriglia, uh, who is many things. Uh, he is a uh, literature professor. You can find him on YouTube talking about Moby Dick. Uh, you, uh, he is a, a musician. You can see uh, see pictures relevant to that on social media. <laughs> uh, he uh, is uh, is somebody who I first met uh, because he was discussing um, having uh, my favorite Slovenian person come on to uh, TNBS <laughs> back when that was happening. Yeah. Uh, so. Um, so yeah, that's uh but he is also most relevantly for today somebody who uh thinks a lot about young Fred William Hagel. So <laughs> let's uh let's talk about that guy. We haven't done a philosophy episode here in a minute, so I thought this would be fun. Great, yeah. Um, you know, it's I've got I've got an interesting sort of in on Hegel, or maybe maybe it's not so interesting. Maybe it's definitely idiosyncratic yeah. because my first introduction to Hegel was through, um, actually through literary theory and criticism, and then later through uh, through psychoanalysis, through the work of Slavoj Žižek. But you know, basically, um, I, the, my least knowledge of Hegel is through the actual field of philosophy. But I do have things to say in that in that regard. <laughs> but um, so my. My uh, my version of Hegel is at least a little bit idiosyncratic, I would say. Yeah, fair enough. So, I mean, I think one of the interesting things about Hegel probably is that, you know, more than just about anybody else I can think of, there are, like, all of these... Um, all of these different ones, right? I mean, I guess, like, Kant maybe yeah. is, the, is the person who's probably the most likely in this regard, but, like... There are all of these like very very different um, readings, right? And it's it's not like um, yeah. And, and I think the sort of level at which you know, I mean, I don't you know the times I actually like read Hegel, like I never get the feeling that I'll get reading some I don't know twentieth century French you know philosophers yeah. where I'm just like. I have no idea what the fuck this guy is saying. This is just babble, right? You know, like I don't, I, I never get that, right? But I, but there is this, there is this like pretty wide leeway for interpretation. Well, even, I mean, even from the beginning, I mean, you have, if you know, like people, if people are interested in this, uh, you know, if you just go, I mean, start at, you know, Wikipedia and look through, you know, history of, you know, Hegel reception and almost immediately there are two camps. There's left Hegelians, which Marx eventually comes out, and you have right Hegelians, and you still kind of have that. You still have that phenomenon today, basically. Um, and I was thinking, you know, before we started, I was trying to think of a, a 20th century, um, you know, philosopher or even contemporary philosopher for whom, you know, the readings or interpretations are so, you know, vastly different that, you know, you can, they belong to a number of different political orientations can claim them as their own, right? I mean, I have a hard time trying to think of, uh, I mean, uh, it's ridiculous to even place these two philosophers mm. in the same, you know, sentence, but 
I have a hard time, uh, you know, thinking that there'll ever be like a left Randianism, for instance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, so in so that and that's both. If you work on Hegel, that's it. Really, is the sort of this is very cliche, but it is both a blessing and a curse because there are very specific, you know, niches of you know, or very specific, you know, this is so and so's Hegel, like this is Robert Brandom's Hegel versus this is Slavoj Žižek's mm. Hegel. Politically, they're not; those two aren't, you know, opposed. Sure. Like they're not necessarily in the same camp, but you know, it's. <laughs> um, but they're saying very different things about what is the core of Hegel's philosophy. Yeah. Um, so this is interesting. Uh, they have. Okay. So, so like maybe let's, let's, let's back up a little bit. And I think in a really broad strokes, uh, somebody who's interested in Hegel, maybe because they're interested in Marxism, uh, yeah. thinks about hate. Like basically thinks about two things probably when they think about Hegel, right? Like one of them um, is this idea that is itself like I think very contested, like what what this would mean or what what it would what it would amount to if it's true. But this like idea that's like popular in the history of Marxism that there's you know that there's something about like uh, the methodology or the the like structure of Hegel's ideas that's like important because it's then like imported into, into Marxism um, that, you know, that there's like some special dialectical method that's like different from other methods. That's one, but like putting that aside uh, for the moment, right. Then like the other is that it's the contrast to, yeah. uh, to Marxism because um, even though Marx starts out as a left Hegelian, uh, you know, he doesn't end that way because, because uh, of course, uh, one of Marx's main things is historical materialism, the idea right. that uh, the sort of main way that we understand, uh, you know, both past history and, you know, future prospects for historical change is by um, emphasizing these like material factors, the, you know, the you know forces of production, the means of production, all that stuff, yeah. uh, relations of production, uh, and uh, as opposed to sort of seeing... Like, uh, not only as opposed to like what I, you know, Hegel, I guess, actually does think, which is that there's this, um, you know, world spirit that's unfolding through history, but like even a sort of, um, but, you know, but as opposed to even like the sort of mildest version of something like that, right, which would be the idea right. that like ideas are, are the, in some sense, the, the primary driver, right? So if, if people are kind of starting out with that idea, of of Hegel, like, what's the, I don't know, maybe, uh, you know, maybe start with Slavoj, that's like a good reference point, right? Because you said, you said that's like, you know, your, your sort of first, you know, like your, your sort of first interest in Hegel's the literary criticism interest, and then the second is the psychoanalytic through him, but like, what's the, uh, you know, so like, what's the, the Zizekian take about all this? Yeah, well, what's interesting is that, you know, if you look at even just in the titles of of Zizek's books alone, the the first you know I don't know ten or fifteen years, maybe a little bit less of his publications in English, um, you know he has a lot of books that are explicitly about Lacan and psychoanalysis, and where Hegel seems to play a sort of secondary role, or it's like he's kind of just occasionally drawing on Hegel to help uh, clarify some points about 
about psychoanalysis, but it's actually kind of the opposite. And his work has taken that direction in the past, like 10 years where, you know, a lot of books or, you know, at least a few books with Hegel in the title. And what's interesting about uh, why I think Slavoj and or Zizek's work is very interesting to talk about with regard to this question, just, just to, just to rehearse the yeah. kind of distinction that you, that you drew there. Right. So, um, cause I think that both of those two points, they're, they're, they're integral and they're, they're interrelated, right? Marx never mm, gets mm-hmm. rid of the dialectical um, model mm, that mm-hmm. he takes from Hegel. But as the second point you're making, he does, right, historical materialism flips um, Hegel on its head, right? So that it's that we start in Marx with matter, and that's what's responsible for um, shaping ideas and our very consciousness, right? Whereas for Hegel in the traditional reading, and I think, you know, this is probably largely true, that mm. you have um, ideas or that the mind is, is, is primary and that's the primary actant upon the world as opposed to the world acting upon, upon the mind. Um, and I think where what's interesting and what confuses people <laughs> when mm-hmm. they look at a title of a book by Zizek, for instance, like his, let's take his, his biggest book. I think it's the book that he'll be um, most remembered for um, less mm-hmm. than, the irony of it being calling being a call, uh, it being called less than nothing, even though it's a thousand pages. Right, but right, right. The subtitle is Hegel and the Shadow of Dialectical Materialism, and it's funny yeah. because dialectical materialism it's it's not it's not the same thing, right? But this is associated usually if you're coming at coming at it from the Marxist tradition as mm. belonging to historical materialism, right? Right. Um, and. Uh, Zizek's point, it's, it's very kind of subtle, but he would argue that in Hegel, you already get this, this kind of materialism, but he doesn't mean, I don't want to get too deep in the weeds here, but he doesn't uh. mean necessarily by materialism what, what Marx means by, by materialism. But mm. maybe this is an interesting way to kind of think about it. Yeah. Um, let's go back to the first point about the dialectic. Yeah. Uh, and let's start like very basically for people. If, if, if no one, you know, if there's anyone listening who, who, you know, you've heard the name Hegel, maybe through Marx, the, the one thing, the thing that most people know about Hegel, aside from the fact that uh, the, the word and concept of dialectics is this notion that the dialectic unfolds according to um, thesis, antithesis, and then those two, uh, there's a sort of war of opposites. And they end up sort of reconciling in this synthesis. So it's like a three-part process. And that is where a lot of thinkers in, in, in Hegel specifically says this. He says uh, oppressor and, and oppressed when he's talking about consciousness and the master-slave dialectic in his book, um, Phenomenology of Spirit. And Marx draws on some of this as well. Um, but what happens is that with the communist manifesto mm. <laughs> that was just i just watched the video from the panel what was the panel that you did with those with those oh. <laughs> this is an aside but i just I, I i was i was i was surprised to learn from the the one woman who was on the panel that uh that the communist manifesto is all about race and gender yeah yeah so uh <laughs> this sorry, was sorry sorry this was, was a derailment no, no, no 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 it's okay it's okay it's okay, it's okay. The, uh, so, so yeah, this was, uh, last, uh, yeah, what is it? Last weekend, uh, 
which is funny because I'd actually like just finished this like trip to Toronto and I'd like done this talk with Iris and everything and then like I was like pretty exhausted after the last few days, but I, I'd agreed to do this like months ago with this you know this conference where there's better discourse. Uh, you know, you could judge for yourself whether or not it's better. And uh, they and they were they had all these like political debates at it, and so they asked if I wanted to do one, and I kind of picked the one with like the most like reasonable sounding topic. You know, it's like okay, fine, I'll do this. And uh, and yeah, it was like three conservatives and me, and and uh, like the original question was was about sort of like you know, kind of the midterm elections and, like, what might happen, you know, if the GOP kind of takes over everything. But since it was, like, on all these, like, policy things that, like, Republican state legislatures have done, so we got onto the, you know, critical race theory and the DeSantis, you know, don't yeah. say gay bill and all that stuff. And, um, and yeah, in the course of talking about, like, this horrible threat, you know, because, like, I, I used the phrase contrived culture war nonsense, you know, in, like, my original comments, right. and, you know, they got very offended by that. Uh, this one woman, Lisa Reynolds, in particular, said, no, 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 these are, these are solutions to this, like, very real thing, right? You know, it's like, this, this is necessary because of all this terrible stuff going on in the schools. And she was going on about all the terrible stuff going on in the schools. And she said, it's like, um, uh, you know, using uh, the, you know, the goals to, you know, of, of all of this critical race theory and gender ideology, indoctrination, all that is to uh, use race and gender to undermine the family, like Marx says in the Communist Manifesto. <laughs> <laughs> and, and yeah, and I, I had the same reaction you did just now. Uh, and, and then she, like, I mean, I, the best thing about it is she was, like, absolutely convinced it was there. Like, she encouraged people to, to look up their phones. Yeah. She actually took out her phone and spent, like, minutes looking for this passage in the Communist Manifesto where Mark says they're going to use race and gender to, you know, undermine the family. So, uh, <laughs> there had, you have she it. She had a different edition. That was a different edition she read that in. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was the... Uh, I, mean, was Engels the did, that, I mean, Engels did interpolate some things from time to time, but I don't think that... that <laughs> No, no, I don't think this one shows up until the 2022 James Lindsay edition of the uh, Communist <laughs> Manifesto. Uh, but, but you know, I mean, it is, um, I mean, it is fast. Like, I mean, this well, is a person yeah. who I don't know that much about her, but I mean, like, apparently something in her bio, she'll like, it, you know, uh, she'll like advise like Republican like congressmen and stuff. Uh, so there, you, there you have it, right? This is what they think. But like, yeah, it is, and it is really interesting because it's like. Uh, the actual point about the family that's made in the Communist Manifesto, even though, I mean, whatever, I mean, like Marx and Engels were, you know, 1840s, you know, bohemian revolutionaries who were all into free love and everything, that that part's true, right? You know, but like, yeah. um, but what they actually, the argument they actually make in the Communist Manifesto is not like, oh, we've got to undermine the family, here's our master plan to do so. The uh, the argument they make is this is a silly thing to accuse communists of wanting to do because capitalism is already undermining the family. Right, exactly. The whole point is that it's it's literally it's literally the the epoch of the of the bourgeoisie of, of capitalism that's undermining um, the family. Just the way that it's 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 the logic of capital that is that he says you know is severing basically is interconnecting the globe, but also severing everything. You know. Um, the family is one of the very it's one of it's one of the primary things that is quote unquote torn asunder right by yeah. by by capital yeah 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 the, the, um, all the with, all the solid melted into air and all that yeah e exactly but okay but to tie this back into 
into Hegel. I think this is where um, I think the distinction between like, is it matter that comes first and forms ideas mm. or is it mm-hmm. ideas that then, you know, outwardly shape matter? I think where where Hegel and Marx are ultimately connected is on the question, even though Hegel doesn't necessarily, I'm not sure if he ever uses the term. I don't think he ever uses the term. If he does, he doesn't necessarily use it in the Marxist sense. The term had just really been invented, ideology. But the notion that, right, you have oppressor and oppressed, I think where Hegel is useful here to go back to this standard notion of the dialectic that unfolds according to thesis, antithesis, and then they somehow synthesize. Mm. I think and this is useful for thinking about Marx too, for those who are, you know, thinking about Hegel or approaching Hegel through Marx, is that yeah. the notion that you have these two discrete entities. So let's say like bourgeoisie and um, proletariat are like, let's put them in this position of thesis antithesis, right? Yeah. Um, and then it's, so if you were to, you know, try to do the standard Hegelian reading, there would be some there'd be some sort of compromise between like the, the bourgeoisie and the proletariat that would lead to this like sort yeah, of yeah, yeah. third, this third entity. And so I, when you try to think of Hegel in the, it, that sort of retroactively shows how that's a misreading of Hegel for Hegel, yeah. the antithesis thesis and antithesis are not always two like discrete, mutually exclusive entities like right and left. It's actually the antithesis is internal to the logic of the actual thesis itself, because for mm-hmm. Hegel, um, for Hegel, contradiction. There, some people will disagree with this because there's sure. there's also different camps about the role that contradiction does or doesn't play in Hegel. But yeah. um, according to the reading that I think Hegel, for nothing is ever identical with itself. It's always sort of self undermining, and uh-huh. so let's so antithesis is baked sort of within the thesis. So let's transpose that onto onto Marx. Um, yes, you do have class struggle and you do have the uh, you know owners of the means of production and you have the workers who have nothing to sell but their labor, right? Um, but Marx quite clearly said, Mar- Marx and Engels, they quite clearly say in the Communist Manifesto that it's not the epoch of the bourgeoisie and the proletariat. It's the uh-huh. impact of the bourgeoisie. The proletariat is a symptom of 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 the capital era. It's ne- it's a necessary symptom because the worker is what creates all the profit for capital. But right. this is why Marx even says, you know, capitalism. It, uh, the bourgeoisie digs its own grave because the very logic of capital um, is constantly turning, you know, owners into proletarians. That's why, unlike feudalism, where you know, you very rarely, if ever, had somebody who goes from like lord to serf. Um, that's baked into the bourgeois epoch. Is that or epoch? Is that you're you're always one step away from becoming <laughs> proletarianized. So the idea that like the dictatorship of the proletariat um, would be this sort of like synthesis to go to that old sort of, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sort of Hegel. Um, uh, so I, th- you know, I think that Marx. The standard reading is, like you were saying earlier, that um, Marx, the young Marx, was a Hegelian, and then after he flipped sort of Hegel on his head and came up, you know, practiced historical dialectical materialism, that um, that he left Hegel behind. But I think that it's it's interesting to, I don't think Hegel ever really goes away. 
um, in the sense that I think it's there throughout all of, of Marx, even when Marx changes or sort of um, complicates the notion of ideology that you get in something early like the German ideology yeah. um, and then later in Capital. But I don't know if I, don't, I hope I'm not rambling. I'm trying to like no, no, this is because most people I think would be most people who are listening would probably, as you said, be more grounded in the sort of Marxist tradition than the Hegelian one. Yeah, yeah, no, this is really useful. Uh, by the way, just out of curiosity, do you do you watch do you watch the uh, the uh, uh, Zizek uh, Chipper thing about ideology? I did. Yeah, I made I made it through. I watched the first. I, I not because uh, I I didn't make it all the way through. Because something came up, but I've been meaning to go back for like two weeks now and finish it. Um, okay. Because, uh, but I did watch about, I'd say like at least 50 minutes or so of it. I was really enjoying it. I thought it was great. It seemed like less a debate uh, to me, <laughs> but. No, no, I, I think that's, I, I think that's right. I think that there might be, uh, I think there might be points where they do, you know, there might be implicit disagreements that didn't really yeah. come out, but the, but like. I, I think they agreed on on enough, right? You know that it was like in, um, you know, it was, it was like kind of structured as a debate. But I mean, like they they kind yeah. of, you know, they kind of ended up like converging on like almost everything in the actual discussion. And then like, I I, I think in the very like last few minutes, Slavoj kind of says some things that, um, you sort of have to like read the tea leaves a little bit to get it because like he doesn't make okay. it explicit. But like that, I think like might imply some disagreements that he wasn't really spelling out, you know, like, I mean, but it's like a little hard to tell because it's all kind of like, he's like telling jokes and stories and stuff. You know, he, you know, he, I, I don't know if I would necessarily, I know that I would, I would consider myself, you know, uh, uh, I don't know if I would label myself. I, I, yeah, I probably would consider myself a Hegelian, but whereas like Slavoj's point is like, no, I'm not a Marxist. He's not saying he's anti-Marxist, but he would much rather, you know, go with the label of Hegelian than Marxist. And, you know, from what I gathered from the first sort of like 45 minutes of that, of that discussion is that there was a lot of, a lot of overlap. I'll have to go back and watch and see the last, the last part of it. But I think that you can, you can make the argument that Vivek is making that it's too simplistic to, view workers uh, through this sort of old lens that they, you know, everything needs to be demystified for the worker because the worker doesn't understand. They're, they're so enthralled by ideology that they don't understand yeah, yeah. separated from their very material conditions. I think he makes some very good points in that regard, but I still think that um, the he's, he's discussing a particular mode of ideology or an even ideology critique that I think may be mostly defunct, but uh, I, if I'd had to guess, and maybe Slavoj doesn't exactly say this, but, um, you know, the modes of ideology shift. And so I think we're still, I would still say I'm committed to the goal of ideology critique. But I think, you know, Vivek, um, I, you know, I would love to, to more, there needs to be more discussion between um, the sort of camp that Slavoj and, and I are, you know, um, related to or associated with and, and Vivek. Because I just, you know, Slavoj, I think he wrote one of the, endorsements on the back of uh, Vivek's most most recent book. So I wasn't surprised that that um yeah. you know I, I know there there are there are differences, but I think there's more in common than than anything else. Yeah, I mean one way of like even though I I mean I think part of the reason there ended up being so much agreement is that I think that like a lot of the people that Vivek is uh reacted against uh you know like Slavoj also, you know, 
like yeah. d- doesn't like right you know so uh so I, <laughs> right. I i think that there's like you know i i think that there's like a lot of ground for for like sort of chubby agreement there but i think what maybe is interesting maybe does bring us back to hegel a little bit hmm. is uh that like there's a way of like even just the opening you know the part you watched right i mean like there's a way of um like understanding what Vivek is up to that is like, okay, so you think about uh, Marx moving away from Hegel and towards the idea that like material factors, you know, are going to at least, you know, not that ideas don't matter. And, you know, I mean, I know there are people, especially you're kind of like dumber internet Marxists who think that like being a materialist means that you you think that like, the ideas in people's heads have no causal role whatsoever in anything that happens. But like, right. I've always, th- I've always thought a uh, Marx to his credit, doesn't seem to believe that. And B, if he did, then nobody should take it seriously. Cause it's just obviously right. not true. Right. You know, yeah, so, absolutely. Yeah. you know, so it's like, okay, so you don't want to think that, but, uh, but the, you know, there's a, you know, Marx wants to at least explain, like at least give sort of primary importance to material factors and explaining certain kinds of historical developments. And, and then uh, when you at least come to, you know, recent history, like why has capitalism, you know, lasted this long, right? You know, why hasn't the, you know, the sort of grave diggers that inevitably rises up, you know, uh, done away with it. Uh, Then, um, then, like this is a place where a lot of Marxists have thought that the sort of okay, at least in explaining that, then we really need to like go into this like ideas stuff to like really like get it figure out what's going on right. there. Right. And 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 so in a sense, like you can see what he's doing. I mean, even though if you listen carefully, and I'm not you know a hundred percent sure what I think about all the details of this view, I'm still kind of mulling it over. But like, yeah. if if you listen carefully to what he's saying, you know there is still a kind of role he allows for ideology. But uh, you know, because he wants to give like a material explanation for why capitalism has been so stable, he wants to say no, the the heavy lifting here is really done, being done by these facts about the class structure itself. Uh, then, like, in a sense, it's like an attempt to, like, make the sort of, like, Marxist understanding of, you know, history and social change and all that even more materialist, you know, than... Right, uh, right. Well, because his because his, his, well, not even his fear, but the the argument is that, yeah. right, his position is that once you make that move, you basically, you almost can't help but leave the material the materialist analysis behind because you've, you, you've almost transposed the entire discussion into the realm of culture. Um, right. On Marx. Do I have that right? Uh, That, because I think that isn't, that's one of Vivek's big points, right? Is that the, especially on the academic, like quote unquote, is that much of it is just totally an analysis of culture that, um, may even claim to be sort of materialist, but it's not, it's not actually materialist in the sense of, uh, you know, accounting for, you know, an- a materialist analysis of why it is that, like you were saying, we still, we're still in the capitalist epoch, even as, yeah. as late, <laughs> as late capitalist as it may be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's getting very, very late. Uh, yeah. So I, I think, I think that's right. Right. I, I, and I think this is like, I think like what I know about, you know, Vivek and like the other stuff is that i've read like i 
uh, anybody read my uh, my Hitchens book? Like I get into this a little bit there uh, that the that like a lot of his stuff has in the past has been like uh, you know shitting on post colonial theory and yeah, in, in, right. in this in this way where he sort of sees it as like. And like whatever, I mean, this is not original to him. He's like drawing on you know um, various things that you know, like there are like Marxist thinkers in the Arab world who said things like this in the in the past. You know that he's like he's he's drawing on, but like who, but like basically because like all of the stuff about uh, Orientalism and all that, like to, to his mind, sort of like makes it like you know you're sort of like trying to like psychologize. Yeah. Like what, what you should just say, like, look, this is not that, you know, like, in a sense, it's like not that deep, right? I mean, like, yeah. what motivates colonialism? You know, it's like, well, it's the, the, the drive to, like, you know, harvest material resources, you know, from, uh, from the people, you know, from the people being colonized, you know, like that. And, like, and the sort of the source of the problem and the solution to the problem are both, you know, are both sort of like yeah. crassly. Yeah. 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 Well, I, I think I think that, you know, in general, that's why I, it, that's another thing that he also has in common with with Slavoj, where they would find common ground, because, you know, Slavoj has a lot of um, critiques, especially like the early to mid 90s of, of post-colonialism, post-colonial theory around this that are in the same a similar vein to, to, to Vivex. But, you know, I, I do think that um, within, you know, speaking <laughs> From you know within the the academy that you know there there are I I, I know uh, a number but I know I could count I could count the amount of people who are you know who are conversant in Marxist theory like I couldn't put I couldn't put a number on that in the academy yeah, yeah. I, but I could put a number on the amount of people who are actual Marxists um, right. <laughs> and who are actually sort of committed to so in other words and. I, I, I think I, I've said this to you like before um, in a, a, one of our other discussions. Um, not to not to give um, Doctor Jordan Peterson any, yeah, yeah. <laughs> any, any yeah, yeah. credit, but I kind of do know what he's saying in a certain regard. That there is a lot of, um, or at least he's he's entirely wrong about what he's saying, but he nonetheless in doing that kind of puts his finger on a problem. Uh, at least from the, a leftist standpoint, which is that you do get a lot of, you know, Marxist terminology, I mean, you know, hegemony um, is one term that, you know, every academic knows, but um, it's there, you do get a lot of, uh, when you approach it through this vein, you end up with a lot of like Robin D'Angelo type of diagnosis, you know, trying <laughs> to treat the symptoms and psychologizing it as, oh, racism we need to, you know, have implicit bias, you know, seminars as opposed to um, any sort of discussion of, you know, the intertwining of, you know, racism and capitalism, for instance. No, um, I, yeah, yeah. I, think, I think that's that's exactly it, right? I mean, like if the sort of, um, right, you know, like if the if the if like the basic problem is um, that, um, you know, I mean, if the basic problem. Uh, is like Westerners having this like worldview that like you know you read like Edward Said and you know at, at his like sort of most grandiose like you know is like from like Homer onward right you know they have this like worldview that uh, 
that sees, you know, that like tends to like essentialize Middle Eastern people. This isn't something that like people do to rationalize why, you know, they're yeah. conquering people and stealing their resources, but rather it's the reason they're doing so that it almost does sound like the equivalent would be, it almost does sound like the solution would be to like, you know, send around Robin D'Angelo to do deep dives with, you know, Western politicians to, you know, media figures to get them to to stop seeing things this way so then they'll stop acting on it, right? Or if that's not the solution, it's very unclear what the solution is. But, I mean, that that is also, like, I mean, you know, what you were saying about academics, right? I mean, this is kind of part of the thing because it's like yeah. that question about solutions is just not where most academics' heads are at, right? Like, that they, that, like, okay, if such and such analysis is right, then where do we, you know, where does that leave us? Right. right? You know, so, <laughs> you know. so we, we, yeah, it's, well, it's because where do you, where do you go after you've done an analysis of, let's say, let's stick with like the sort of Edward Said. Um, and, and by the way, like I, I really do think that Orientalism and I mean, and a ton, a culture and imperialism. I mean, I Said yeah. is a hugely important figure. Sure. I think there's, um, you know, there's much that's, that's fantastic and in, say in, in mm-hmm. well like let's take you know a, a standard sort of i don't know analysis of um the way orientalism functions in culture it's the goal um i think the goal posts should be somewhat broader than um okay ending that treatment um or the, you know ending the othering yeah. of, of somebody as opposed to okay well the reason why a whole group has been othered is, you know, there's an ideological purpose behind that. And so it's less so like we're very good at demyst academics are very good at, at demystifying things, but not very good at then sort of recreating it and saying, Oh, this is why this particular ideology is being leveled against this group of people because a, B and C material interests lie underneath it or lie behind that, that very program. It's like treating the problem of racism or sexism or, you know, um, homophobia, um, it, which of course are problems sure. that need to be pushed back against. But, um, the reason that these, you know, phenomena happen, right. Let's get back to, um, the materialist causes that, you know, um, lead to these, these things. Right. Um, and I think that that's, I have, I know many fewer academics who would do that or are interested in, in that kind of analysis. Um, no, I think, I think, I think, I yeah. think that's exactly right. I think that like, and I think that, I mean, look, part of the problem, um, I mean, I don't, you know, I, 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 I have admitted to you in the past that I, I sort of, uh, you know, I've kind of come to dislike academics as like a type of person, but like, I, I think like being more, you know, the, uh, you know, Bernie versus Warren kind of did number on me there, but the, uh, but, um, <laughs> But, like, you know, try to take a step back and be more sympathetic. I mean, I think that there's a, there's an extent, you know, to which, like, idealism is sort of naturally more appealing to people who are in the ideas business for a living, right? Like, that, yeah. Uh, yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. You know, that, uh, which, which I totally get, right? I mean, like, I think that... Um, I mean, look, I, I wish I, you know, I, mean, I wish people being like, you know, in the grips of like wrong ways of understanding the world, et cetera. Like I, 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 I'd be much happier thinking that's like the entire problem. Right. Cause like, yeah, then, yeah. then, then shit, look at how you, you know, look at how useful we could be. Right. Like, uh, 
Um, so, right. so yeah, yeah, exactly. We would have, this would have been solved a long time ago if that were if that were it, right? I mean, yeah, 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 yeah. No, exactly. Uh, and and then I guess I guess part of Vivek's point is that you know people are like and like and this is really also like I think it pretty deeply Marx's point. Like if you look at uh, uh, if you look at the stuff that Marx says about religion and like some of those like early writings of the eighteen forties, or yeah. even if you. Or even if you look at what he's saying about like commodity fetishism and capital, um, like he has, you know, I mean, I gotta know. Maybe the religion one is a better example, right? So he has a in there, like he kind of his big argument, like like in the the place where that you know open to the people passage is from. Like you actually read the whole thing. His big argument in there, or for that matter, in the unfortunately named on the Jewish question or wherever, like is uh, that it, it's sort of you know, basically like doing the Richard Dawkins thing just to be anachronistic about it and like trying to talk people out of being religious is, is going to sort of miss the point because, um, yeah. you know, because cause that's not going to work, right? You know, because as long as you have the, the social conditions that make people want the sort of consolation of religious illusions, you know, then you're, you're just, it's just never going to go anywhere. Well, that's, well, that's, that's the, I mean, speaking of religious illusions, that's, you know, I, I teach at uh, a Catholic university. Seton Hall is, is yeah. a Catholic university. And one of the classes that that I teach, um, and one of the reasons why it's so appealing to me is because the second half of the class is kind of like um, modern thought, like modern critique in a way. Um, very, very broadly construed. But we read, you know, we it's called, the, the class is titled uh, and it's a standard class. I, I, I didn't uh, create it. It's in the university core, but it's titled Christianity and Culture in Dialogue. Yeah. And the class starts with reading like St. Paul, Justin Martyr, Aquinas. And then we get the second half of the semester, you get like um, Galileo, Darwin, uh, Nietzsche, Marx, Freud. Uh, so that's that's the latter half of the class I, um, is what I enjoy. But, you know, I teach freud's or at least like maybe half of freud's future of an illusion in that class and you know um i still have you know a student can read that who's a student of faith can read that and you know freud uh can even agree with the points freud's making about religion being oh you know wish fulfillment Uh, an illusion and nonetheless can still entirely believe and maintain their faith and you know go to mass and so these these two things i think we've we've kind of um this is another thing that that academics and i would include myself and i mean as one i'm being just as right, right. myself but the idea that once you demystify something or once you point out to somebody look this is um you know false or you know th- th- you've sort of you know taken the um the planks from underneath them and said you know now you're just standing like in a looney tunes cartoon you've you've yeah, gone yeah. off <laughs> the cliff but you're still hovering but you can <laughs> That you can very easily demystify something, and the knowledge of that is not necessarily inherently performative. In other words, it doesn't. It doesn't. That doesn't mean when you have knowledge that you inherently say, "Oh, you're right. I'm going to go and do the opposite now." Just because it's you don't even have to necessarily disagree. You can agree and still continue acting, um, and still continue believing. I think you know this. Somebody better to talk about this would actually be Slavoj, but. Um, no, but that's but this yeah because yeah. this the, I mean this is a yeah. big theme of his right I mean that's the that's the point of that that uh, that anecdote he always tells about you know Niels Bohr and the horseshoe Niels right Bohr, like, the horseshoe right I heard it still works even if you don't believe in it and um, 
and I think that that we have that we have fewer answers to. And I think that you know it's not enough to merely point out to somebody right like. And I love. Uh, I'm not saying necessarily this is what Thomas Frank is doing, but you know, um, if it were as easy as saying, um, you know, look, you've been voting <laughs> against uh-huh. your own material <laughs> self-interest. Uh-huh. Again, that would pe- people would have read that book and have been, oh yeah, you're right. Um, yeah, 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 you're right. I am yeah. going to start voting, you know, Democrat or you know, yeah, yeah, Democrat yeah. or whatever. Um, the the I- ideology continues to exert a. Not only is it not only I think it's a two way street. Not only is ideology a sort of result of or sort of yeah a sort of result of material conditions, but ideology itself can can has materialist. Um, has materialist consequences in people's everyday lives. Okay, so I, so I think that last point, you know, gets us at at sort of what we were hovering around for a lot of earlier in the discussion. Um, yeah, and yeah, there's so much interest in here. I actually um, actually just um, you know, a book that I just reread pretty recently since Aaron Brown uh, wanted to talk to me about it for his podcast was uh, the Mark Fisher Capitalist Realism and there's uh-huh. a thing. And there's a thing in there that uh, that I think makes the same point, you know, that you're making about ideology in a slightly different way about how, like, Soviet, um, uh, you know, about, like, how, like, there was basically in the Soviet system, there was all this stuff that was sort of, like, you know, pitched at, like, this mythical person who believed everything the regime was saying. Right, uh, and everybody sort of knew that there weren't any of those people, but like it kind of didn't matter. Like everything was still like, sort of, you know, the whole sort of, you know, I don't know, symbolic structure of like everything, everything that was going on was still like oriented still around place. that yeah. non-existent person, you know, who like believed everything. Uh, so you know, maybe that you know, maybe that gets to the point in a, in a different way. Uh, yeah, although, well, this this would be yeah. you know, we I remember we did we watched the uh, the it's got to be over a year ago now, the Chomsky-Foucault debate. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. The one thing, maybe not the one thing, but one thing that is, that is, I think, useful from, from Foucault here is the notion of, like, if you think of the Panopticon, right, um, just because, like, with the actual, so if you think of the of an actual Panopticon, the prison, with the, um, uh, uh, what's the, like, sentry tower in the middle, um, it still functions even if there's no, even if there's no, you know, guard in the actual tower because there could be a guard. Like you've you've internalized, you've internalized that. It's not necessarily the same point, but yeah, yeah. Um, but but still, you, you can you can continue to act um, in the way you've been acting, even if you know, right? I mean, so I know, for instance, like I could know, for instance, that, um, or people could know very well that you know your chances of catching COVID outdoors are you know slim to none, and still you know you'll still see people. Um, you know, masking up outdoors, and but I don't. I, that's I'm going on a tangent now. I'm, I'm no, not, but like, but but that is but that is you know, yeah. I mean, that is the interesting one, though. Um, and I mean, I also anyway. I think that I think that's kind of a. I yeah, think that, sorry, I didn't want to. I didn't want to. I think I think that's yeah. I mean, I think it's kind of an unfortunate one because like the people who do that like like the things they believe and understand and do and understand that you should do are like much more right, you know, than the, than the enemies well, of those, exactly, exactly. Of, the, of, of those right. people. But I right. think that like what the, 
mass outdoors or like the mass outdoors while you're fucking jogging so there's like sweat soaking through the mask and it's like you know uh you know like the uh like all that stuff like i think what it's maybe a symptom of is a is is the way that the sort of what should be the most like neutral technocratic subject ever you know has like become a culture war thing and like this Right. The stupidity of that is definitely not evenly distributed, uh, but it's, but like, that is, that is like, but like, that is clearly like, I remember, well, somebody I will leave unnamed, a past guest had told me that while she was in, um, uh, you know, she doesn't normally live in the U S but while she was in the U S she, you know, was like, uh, and granted this was like, I think at a point where the pandemic was worse, you know, but like she was yeah. like, um, uh, but, you know, she was jogging and, like, people would, like, sort of, like, in New York and people would, like, kind of, like, you know, stare these, like, hate daggers at her. And then she was, like, calling calling her boyfriend. And she was, like, what the fuck? Why are they doing this? And he was, like, oh, it's because there's no mask. And she was, like, wait, really? Like, you know, we we know that this doesn't, you know. And then yeah. what she started doing is she just started wearing it around her neck, you know. So it's, like, so you have that little signal that, like, don't worry. I'm oh, on yeah, the right. don't worry. You know, I'm on the. I'm serious. I'll put you know, yeah, yeah. Well, it's like, or really, I think what it's a signal of is like, just like, don't worry. Like, I'm, I'm in your tribe, right? You know, I'm a like, good one. I'm a good one. Yeah. Don't yeah, worry. Yeah. I'm a good. I'm not. Yeah. Yeah. No. At this, at this particular moment, I'm not as good, but I'm still. Yeah. No. I. Um. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> I, no, I really didn't mean to bring us down. No, no, it's okay. It, it's okay. It's interesting. So, so, you so know, I do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, make your point. What were you gonna say? I was just gonna say, you know, a better example, uh, I think, or of one that that I think all of us are, are equally guilty of would be, um, sort of, uh, the knowledge about the climate. Um, you yeah, know, yeah. If if we really, did, if it were the case that knowing everything or at least knowing how screwed we are um that knowledge was itself performative that you know we would have already changed the way that we act but and now of course it's you don't want to make that just a a, a problem of individual consciousness right where like the individual right. is interpolated like okay have uh Slavoj says it makes this point a lot too like did you you know recycle all uh, your yeah, yeah. and your coke cans and everything you know as though you know if a hundred percent of people in the world did that. We would still have, we'd still be screwed because of all the carbon emissions and everything. But, um, but still it's, it's just the way that you can know something very well and still act in the opposite way or act as though, um, uh, you know, uh, you you can still do the opposite. Um, and I think that there's something about the way that ideology functions that again, it's not just, um, that, you know, we're programmed through a sort of ideology, but in our very actions, there's, you know, ideologies that work materially. Yeah. And, and I think that, okay, so that's good. I'm glad you said that. Cause I mean, we, we do have to get off, but I think that that okay, last, yeah. I think that that point, <laughs> like, I think that that last point, obviously there's a lot to unpack there about what that means, but I mean, that's a, but I think it does maybe get us at some of where we started, which is uh, the sort of like kind of, Starting with that, like, kind of received understanding, um, the of you know 
somebody like me has of like, you know, okay, here's what Hegel thinks, here's how here's right. what Mark here's what Marx thinks, here's how the two relate to each other. And then like some of what you were saying about like how like you or Slavoj might see things a little differently in terms of this like the way you see the you know, kind of um you know, the relationship between these spheres being different, you know, and that there's this sort of like material you know, material uh, material factors like like being enmeshed, you know, with ideology in a certain way. And this is going to help yeah. us see Hegel differently, and it's going to have something to do with psychoanalysis. And like I said, I, I I think there's a lot to unpack there. I hope that you come back very soon and we do unpack it. But uh, yeah, but this, I'm happy to come back. <laughs> I'm happy yeah, to come yeah, back yeah. Well, let us 100 percent for sure do that. Uh, uh, but this was this was fascinating. Thank you so much, Russ. Thanks a lot, Ben. I really enjoyed it.